Good to be back. If you will, please open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Israel's King Saul had just seen a very young man from the tribe of Judah stand in the gap against the Philistines' nine-foot, nine-inch warrior champion, Goliath. And the mark is still up there. That yellow mark is what he would have been looking at. And this young man would be delivering the Israelites from certain defeat and servitude and all kinds of embarrassment. What had been a 40-day unanswered challenge turned into a truly incredible, unexpected victory. The teenage shepherd had been moved to take on the giant who had cursed the Lord and the Lord's people when no one else had stepped forward, including the king. And this teenage shepherd had been trusting in the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth and all who live therein, to deliver Goliath into his hand. David's heart is revealed to everyone in his words to the giant. In the previous chapter, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, verses 45 through 47, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Now, look closely. What's next? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. That is David's heart. Saul, Saul's son, Jonathan, an extraordinary warrior himself, immediately recognized David as a kindred spirit. He was older than David, and don't forget, he was the prince of Israel. He recognized that David was the one called by the Lord to be his father's replacement. We read in chapter 18, verse 3, that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Then in verse 4, Jonathan willingly and subserviently relinquished his outer garment and weapons, which signified his position as a prince of Israel and heir to the throne, And he gave them to David. 
right after this had happened. In other words, Jonathan discerned that David was God's anointed and without reservation offered the robe of succession to the true king of Israel. Now we ended two weeks ago with verse 5, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The situation of David that looks promising and good right now, and it does, doesn't it? It turns very, very quickly into a drawn-out drama of intrigue and evil as King Saul's attitude towards David becomes driven by envy and jealousy and murderous intent. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 through 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing his, the lyre, and, and he did, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for we, he went out and came in before them. Let's stop right there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now you realize this chapter goes on with a lot of more, a lot more interesting details, which we will get to. There are certain repeated or key words and phrases used in chapter 18 that help outline the main contrast that we see in this chapter. In other words, this is God's word. He wants us to see an incredible contrast. 
and it's really quite easy to do and very graphic. The first repeated word that we see three times is the word successful. In verse 5, we read, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And in verse 14, And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And in verse 15, and when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. The next word we see is the word with. The Lord was with David, which we see also three times. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And again in verse 14, David had success in his undertakings, all of them, for the Lord was with him. Then if you look at verse 28 and 29, toward the end of the chapter, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Another word we see here, a phrase, actually, and the phrases around it, but this one word, is love. Everyone except Saul seems to love David. And we see that six times here in this chapter. And the same Hebrew word is used each time. Verse 1, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And in verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter Michael loved David. Verse 22, all of Saul's servants loved David. And in verse 28, again, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. Fourth, Saul is obviously embittered towards David. So what words do we see here that describe Saul's real feelings? Well, we see that Saul was envious and jealous of David's victories and the people's love for this man. In verse 8, after he heard what the women were singing, we read that Saul was very angry and displeased. In verse 9, Saul eyed David. I think we all know what that means. It means he, that David was watched by Saul with jealous intent from that day on. Saul became more and more afraid of David. Why? Because he knew, no doubt, he knew the Lord was with David and not with him. In verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Verse 15, and when Saul saw that David had great success, this is a strong statement, he stood in fearful awe of him. And in verses 28 and 29, Again, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael loved him, 
Saul was even more afraid of David. But there's something here that I think is even better that's repeated in this chapter. The text actually tells us what Saul was thinking. Did you note that? Which is an amazing look into a bitter man's heart. A man who did not know God's presence. Four times we read here what Saul thought. Now just imagine that for a second. Your life revealed for the rest of history in God's word with what you thought. Look at verse 11. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Verse 17. Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul, Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Verse 21. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And in verse 25, Saul told his servants to tell David that instead of a dowry, all he required of him to marry Michael was proof of killing a hundred Philistines. Then we read in verse 25, the end there, Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Saul's thinking, what was he thinking? Surely the Philistines are bound at some point to finally get rid of this guy. Let me read the rest of the chapter. You follow along. We'll read from 17 till to the end of the chapter through verse 30. We need to see what's going on here and the flow of it because it is a great illustration for all to see the glory, the grace of God, and also to see the malice in Saul's heart. Verse 17, Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I'll give, you, give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Hamolathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. 
Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, a second time you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael's, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Let's go through this. Now, this is about God's favor versus Saul's malice. Why? So that we will see the evil nature in the human heart versus God's favor and his glory and what he does to someone who trusts him. Keep this in mind as we continue to make some observations and conclusions and applications here. Let's start off toward the beginning again at that song we see the women singing. The numbers in this song speak more to the perceived strength of David and Saul than to an actual body count of those slain. But it also says absolutely nothing about what? What does this song say absolutely nothing about? It doesn't say anything about what was the most important thing to David, that the battle was the Lord's, which tells us a whole lot about Israel's spiritual state at this point. Saul's angry reaction shows us how a sinful heart just cannot abide any comparison with someone that makes us look less than them. We have this issue too. 
Saul just could not enjoy the victories of David. You see that? Does Jonathan? Yes. Unlike his son, Saul could not enjoy the victories of David because he's concerned about other things. Instead of being thankful for David and his God-honoring service to the Lord and to him, Saul saw David as what? A threat to his own regime. And yeah, that's true. But it's under God's sovereign ordained purpose and plan and his own neglect of his duty and his hardened heart toward the Lord himself. This kind of evil attitude is one that nobody should let fester and grow because it grows in the hearts of those who care way too much about the opinions of other people and actually crave personal praise. And we've already seen this with Saul. And then what happens if you've got this attitude and you feed it? And look at every situation and circumstance as evidence. What happens is that the person loses the capacity for both joy and love. We need to think hard about this. Our own sinful desires to be looked upon with favor by people and those around us and have a reputation for ourselves says that something is more important to us than God himself and the call that God has given us, which may be in total oblivion compared to whoever you're jealous but what happens is we then lose, if we go that direction, the capacity for joy and love, which is a picture of what? Bitterness. Even after this great victory over Goliath and all the acclaim that went with it, in contrast to Saul, David remained in humble service to this king. How many of us would have not done that? I'm out of here. Humbly before the Lord who put him in that position and for the king who was still the king, although the Lord had left him and he was going to be replaced and David had already been anointed in that private ceremony, David knew what was coming and here we see evidence of what we'll see in the rest of this book. How can David remain in humble service to the king, knowing that he wants to kill him? And then when he had no other choice, he took off, but we know what's coming later. There were several opportunities that David had to get rid of this king, and he did not touch him. Why? Because he was the Lord's servant first and foremost. There's a lot to think about here. So we see the song kind of gives us a picture of this, does it not? What else gives us a picture? This is a little more pointed, pun intended. What about the spear? David's presence in the royal court 
when Saul needed soothing from the harmful spirit, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that God had sent, used to bring comfort, but now just the sight of David brought on instant rage. Bitterness is so destructive. Saul is an advanced and concentrated portrait of a man in rebellion against the Lord. Just like people today who focus their resentment and frustration on other people when their real problem is with God. Walter Chantry writes, God's words and acts cannot be denied and opposed without dire consequences to those who hate what the Lord has established. Saul's misery is God's down payment on the future judgment of sin. Rick Phillips, the tank commander turned minister and theologian. He sees this the strategies behind the scene so clearly. Unable to call on God's help, he had cringed in the presence of a mighty Goliath. Saul didn't volunteer to go. He was the one who should have. He was the king. Just as secular people today live in anxiety and fear before powers greater than themselves. Then when David showed the power of God, and made it so plain it was the power of God to save those who trust him, Saul hated him for the praise that he won. These are just some of the ways that Isaiah's principle about those in rebellion to God is true. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 sums it up like this. The wicked are like the tossing sea. There is no peace says my God for the wicked. Ever notice that? There is no peace for the wicked. Well, let's look more closely at David's humility. Perhaps the most striking fact in this whole account is the way David continued to serve humbly in extremely oppressive circumstances. Just his presence so enraged Saul that Saul had him removed from his presence. But politically, he just couldn't get rid of him because he was a national hero. So he gave him military missions to complete, and we know what he was thinking. He was hoping that the Philistines would finally kill him. But what did God do to turn this around? He made him more and more successful. Saul was planning or tried to plan David's death, but see, he's not in control of this. Neither are you. Neither am I. God is in control of this. David didn't even think himself worthy, which is the best way to interpret this passage, to wed Saul's daughter. Did you see his humble statement? Who am I? to be 
the son-in-law of the king. We hear it twice in here for both daughters. But the first daughter, what's going on here? He didn't think himself worthy to enter the royal family. In verse 18, David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? The next thing we read is that Saul gave his first daughter, Merab, to somebody else. You ever wonder why he did that? This is why. David said, I'm not worthy to be in your house. The next thing we read, he gave her to someone else. Then Saul tries daughter number two. When he finds out, what? That she loves David. This time Saul comes right out and says, he didn't give him a choice. You shall be my son-in-law. And he's thinking that Michael may hinder David in some way. Did you notice that? Didn't explain that very much. But you might remember when (coughs) the Ark of the Covenant is finally brought into Jerusalem and there's a lot of celebrating going on that she had a very judgmental spirit about that whole scenario. And we see a little bit into her heart there. That's about as far as we can read into it. But... You know, fathers, you ever have a talk with that son-in-law? I know this girl. Might have been something along that. So, David's still unsure about this. We see that in verse 23 in the middle. David says, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? This is strategies using two times now for the second daughter like the first, but it's not going to end the same. We must also note that at this point, it seems like David doesn't yet really see the seriousness of Saul's contempt and hatred for him, even though he's been the target of a spear a couple of times already. And you're going, how can he? We know the guy's wiser than this. Well, just think about that for a second. Remember, David had been serving in the court, using his music and God's work through him to calm down a man who was a little uh, off-center. He was used to, in other words, Saul's erratic behavior. And he'd seen him brooding and all over the place in his behavior. And he could easily just have written off the spear episode as one of those erratic things. That would have been easy to do. That's about as far as we can take that one with the details we have. But it's possible. David wasn't 100% convinced yet of the depth the breadth and the height of Saul's murderous intent towards him. Now, this is going to be made clear very shortly. But in the midst of this, did you notice, are you noticing, God is favoring working through David. But it's almost silent. It's not silent in the sense of, well, he's, going out to meet all these Philistines and he's coming back victorious. That speaks pretty loudly. 
but it's not just declared anywhere. There's, there's not any direct words from the Lord to him about this. Do, do you see that? It's kind of God's magnificent, silent favor that's manifested, and we should see that because God can work in circumstances that we have absolutely no thought of even controlling, although we think we can all the time, and God works through those in ways that after we're through them, we look back and what do we notice? Whoa, he used even that, or he used it this way, or wow, I doubted his favor, his goodness, and God is sowing all those seeds of thought in our own hearts and minds as we go through this book. And as good literature is, and God's the best writer of all, it will be laid out. The windows will open. The doors will open a little bit. We'll see more and more and more of it as we go forward. The plot here with Michael continues, and this is part of this. Saul's deal for, he made a deal for Michael being given to David, that most people, all of us here, would probably consider one of the most graphic, bloody, I can't believe this is in the scripture, thank goodness it's in the Old Testament, and how early will I have to explain this to my child? Sections of the whole Bible, true? But what's going on is that his deal for Michael being given to David, and remember, he promised that whoever would kill the Goliath would be married to his daughter. And here we've seen him, you know, the plan is always more complicated than what it looked like at first. It doesn't include a dowry, but it does include the death of a hundred Philistines. Now, why did David agree to this? Because he's a warrior. He knew the Lord was with him. He was confident that the Lord would work through this. Can you see this? You ever known a guy like that? Man, I don't want to even be in this situation around those people. Oh, I couldn't stand it. My family's poor. Yours is rich. Versus, yeah, I can trust God. I can use the gifts he's given me to take care of 100 Philistines. Come on, guys, let's go. And that's kind of what's going on here. We know that Saul is thinking that those Philistines are bound to kill him at some point. The details Saul demands shows us also the hatred that the Israelites had for the Philistines' uncircumcised status. And I'll leave it at that. And even if David succeeds, the revenge desired by the Philistines for such an offense would bring David's life into more peril, even if that's possible, which we see him dealing with them the rest of this book. But to David, not a rich man, not from a rich family, this sounds much better than a dowry. I, I don't know. Gals, do you think that's just too out there? 
some of you are smiling like, yeah, but I know some, yeah, my man, yeah, that makes sense. Much more suited to his gifts and skills. Instead of a hundred Philistine killed, how many does David return proof of kill with? Two hundred. What was the message to Saul? The Lord is with him. I can do nothing, but he keeps trying. Verse 28, that the Lord was with David. We see that Saul is even more mortified, knowing that without a doubt. David had done what Michael's father had asked to win her in marriage, so now Saul had to deal with a daughter really in love with the man he was trying to kill. Think about that for a second. What does this say about Saul's relationship to his daughters? Leaves a little to be desired. Just another piece on the chessboard to try to get rid of his enemy. Do you see the Lord's silent protection of David in these verses? How can you miss it? The more Saul sought evil for David, what happened? The more God protected David, and what? And the more Saul feared him. And this is going to play out. This is the book that has more action in it than we can possibly digest in order to teach us spiritual truth that applies to our everyday lives. We are all not gifted to be victorious in every encounter because we know the Lord. But this is the way the Lord was using David here. The question is, are you okay with God's faithful goodness to you? No matter what he calls you to do, what role he calls you to play, is he your authority? Is God's word your authority? Do you trust him for who he is? Or are you trying to maneuver the Lord to accomplish what you want him to do for you? We come now to the table of the Lord, which is the physical and physical reminder of several things that we're talking about here in this passage. The joy that we have as his people to know him and have him in our lives. Joy. If you are saying, I don't feel too joyful today, it's not about what you feel. But ask yourself, do you have an embittered heart that you haven't taken before God and dealt with, which we've learned cuts off your capacity to enjoy and celebrate what God has done for you. This is also a, a visible and physical reminder of the reverence that we're privileged to give him as we live our lives as his very own possession. Reverence. 
and the faith that we can, by His grace, put in Him every day, no matter what. Christians are His because He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus lived the perfect life demanded of us so that He could be an acceptable sacrifice and die in our place for our sins. And remember that David will find out, if he doesn't know already, that God is using him to be a type of the future Messiah. But he did believe in God and his word and knew that it took more than the sacrifice of animals, that that blood from an animal is a picture of the blood from the person who had to be the sacrifice, who lived the perfect life that's demanded of us. So that, what? So that God could pour his wrath out on that perfect one, paying for our sin, and he could impute his perfect righteousness to us so that we could stand before him forever and ever. We're going to sing a hymn now that communicates this so, so very well. 